Rosary, just started this morning. You're, you're accustomed in the last four weeks to, to receive a rock. And since this is halfway through the course, I thought we'd have a little test. First rock we received was stirred. Who was stirred? Anybody? Israel. First was Cyrus. Cyrus the king, and then all the people who chose to go. So God stirred the hearts. God stirred the hearts of people. Were we able to get this? Is it okay? Okay. So God stirred the hearts of people. And this is in chapter 1, to, go, to return. Some he stirred to give. Second rock was tears. Who cried? Someone, speak up. They, they all did. The young cried out of joy, and the old cried because the grandeur of the old temple was no more. It was smaller. Third was halt. What did halt represent? What was stopped? The building of the temple. Chapter 4. Chapter 5 and 6 was control. What was control all about? God was in control because last week, Pastor Eric talked about the fact that the temple was completed. It was dedicated and celebrated, and within a week or maybe three weeks, there was a Passover that was, was celebrated. So that draws us to today. And today's rock is heart. Heart. And today we're going to be looking at Ezra. Ezra was God's man for his plan. And we're going to be looking at how God worked in his heart and what his heart had a passion for. But let's first pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that in your word we can observe people, men and women, who have sought to serve you and to live for you. Father, as we look today at Ezra, the man, we ask, Father, that in a wonderful way that you might speak to us and encourage us, Lord, to be dedicated, to be devoted, to be committed, Lord, to studying your word in order to be your man or woman. For today, amen. <laughs> today, as I said, we'll be looking at Elijah. I want us to look at his pedigree where he came from, his profession. What did he do? And third, what was his passion? And after that, we'll look at God's plan and how God worked his plan in the situation. The first five verses, we won't read them all, but the first five verses are the genealogy of Ezra. 
And in, in verse 5, you see, it says uh, that, that Ezra was um, the son, well, it said, it talked about Ezra, and it says he was the son of uh, Phineas, he was the son of uh, Eliezer, and he was the son of Aaron the priest, the chief priest. This was necessary to show this genealogy because Aaron was serving as a priest, and down the line, he'd be making some major decisions, some very severe things. In chapter 10, Pastor Eric will be talking about it. There was intermarriage uh, as most of Israel moved out of uh, the country. There was eventual intermarriage, and, and Ezra, as the chief priest, brought down some very severe uh, rulings. And so it's important in, in the mind of the writer that this be seen. He had pedigree. He comes from a long, long line of priests. And remember in chapter 2, as they had returned, there were some, some men who thought they were priests and should be priests, but they couldn't prove it with their genealogy. So it's important that Ezra could prove that he came from the line of a priest. So first we see his pedigree. He was justified in being in his position. Secondly, as we move beyond his credentials, we see that his profession was a scribe. Now the word scribe can have possibly two meanings, a double meaning, really. There was a position within the Persian government where they hired men to oversee different religions. And probably, not definite, but probably Ezra was chief of ministries over the Jewish faith. But secondly, he also was a scribe, one who studies the word, who interprets the word, um, one who copied the word. Um, as I said, he was a priest. He was an expert in the law of the Lord. He was a very gifted man. As a matter of fact, many rabbis, rabbis, most rabbis, would say that he was second only to Moses. So he has a very, very strong name among the Jewish people. Well, we've seen his pedigree. We've seen his profession as a scribe. Let's now look at his passion. Chapter 7, verse 10, reads, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It says that he had set his heart. And that word set carries with it the idea of being devoted to something. It carries with it the idea of being determined to complete that task. Ezra was determined to complete a task. Secondly, we look at that word heart. We're all familiar with the fact that heart is, a, is used as a center of our lives. In Proverbs it says, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So Ezra set his heart which is the center of his life, 
to do what? He prepared himself to study God's word, to live accordingly, and to teach God's word. So I'm, let's look first at studying God's word. Psalm 119, 97 through 104 is a passage I think we, we know, but it's, it, to me it shows the power of God's word. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from evil ways in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Through your precepts, I get understanding. and Therefore, I hate every false way. As we're saying here, I love your word. It makes me wiser than my teachers. It makes me more understanding than the aged. It holds me back from doing evil. It's a good reason, isn't it, for us to study God's word. It's powerful. I'm sure we can think in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, when we have failed to hold fast to God's word. We need to study God's word in order to know what God wants us to do in order to be the people that he wants us to be. Ezra was raised in the home of priest, going back again to Aaron. So it's probable that he studied God's word all the time as a child. And probably at a very young age, memorized large blocks of scripture. What are you and what am I doing as far as studying God's word? Just yesterday, we had Gateway Theological Training, which provides in-depth training for those who desire it. We have adult learning classes where we typically have 30, 35 women. Today was a little bit short, a little bit lower. Uh, 15 to 20 men for adult learning classes. A chance to study God's Word. Third way to study God's Word within here is small groups. Are you connected? Are you studying God's word? It's so very clear that we need to be in God's word. Dr. Henry Ironside, some of you may recognize him from um, commentaries in the past, was a boy about nine or ten years old, and he heard a man come in and speak at his church. And the man talked about the fact that he read through the word every year. And so, so young Henry, or Harry, began reading through the word. And so by the time he was 14 years old, he had read through the Bible 14 times. 14. And had read through it 14 times. Dr. Ironside went on to be this marvelous pastor, um, loved by many, wrote many commentaries that were used um, for so many years by so many people. And it's all because he began to read through the Word, got a heart for the Word. Do you and do I have a heart 
to study God's Word. Well, Ezra didn't stop just at learning God's Word. He wanted to live by it, to do it, I think ESV says. He wanted to live according to God's Word. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says, Do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's easy for us, isn't it, to learn more and more of God's Word and not apply it to our lives. We need to be committed to applying God's Word to our life, to live by it, to live by it. I remember when I came to Christ many years ago and came out of drugs and alcohol and, and just a, a, a life so far from, from God's Word. And I remember I had to call my pastor. I think I called him every day. I had so many questions. But I was hungry. I'd stay up to 2 o'clock in the morning reading God's Word. And as I had questions, I would call him and talk with him. And he'd encourage me to live according to God's Word. Living according to God's Word always means obedience. Obedience. I think it's in, in the Old Testament where it says, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, how do you and I accomplish this thing of walking with God? We don't do it by ourselves. We don't live for the Lord by ourselves. God made us in such a way that we need the body of Christ. That's why we have small groups. That's why we encourage discipleship. That's why we have counseling so very important that we not only know God's word, but apply it to our lives. Well, Ezra set his heart to study God's word, to live by it, and to teach it. He wanted to teach all of Israel. He had a passion and a burden for Israel, who had turned from God's word to turn back to God's word. He wanted to see that nation again and love with Yahweh. You know, God's people always need teaching the Word, don't we? We always need it. We always need that Word. We need to remember that teaching is far more than imparting information. We need Sunday morning worship. We need adult learning on Sundays. We need small groups during the week. But there's a larger part of the church where there's the, the, the body of Christ working together through discipleship, through encouraging those. When you see somebody doing the right thing, to say, hey, I saw you and you were doing a good job there. Teaching also involves confrontation. Most of us don't like confrontation, but it's necessary. And we, as a part of the body of Christ, need to be willing to confront we need accountability in our lives. We need people who can ask questions. I have men in my life that feel free to ask me questions about my life. And I them. Do you? Do you have someone in your life that knows what you're doing? That can ask those hard questions? 
teaching. Teaching is helping people see who God really is. See that God is worthy of our worship. That God is worthy of our trust. That God loves us. We need counseling. We need confrontation. We need encouragement. And all these things are tied in with teaching God's word. Let's look and just see who should be teaching. Who should be teaching? As parents, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, says this. And these words that I command today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them with diligence to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You're saying teaching should be occurring in the home, in daily life. Be diligent about teaching your children. Secondly, we, 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 we went through a series on the one another's, and now the women are going through a, the class on one another's now, and it's really tremendous. But one of the one another's is Colossians 3.16. And it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. The Bible also says that leaders, and really all of us who are mature in Christ, should be reaching out and teaching others. Second Timothy 2 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who are able to teach. Also, God wants you, he wants me involved in the lives of people around us. We need to be looking around. Who needs to be discipled? Who needs to know God's word? Because God says that we should be building up people who can teach. There's even a warning in the book of Hebrews that says, For though this, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you. You need someone to teach you. What Ezra had set his heart, he determined in his heart to study God's word, to do it, to live by it, and to teach it to others. When we think of teaching, sometimes I think we think about Sunday morning here or maybe adult learning class Maybe a small group. In my mind, I think of Mrs. Kogel. Some of you heard me mention Mrs. Kogel. She's this southern lady back in Alabama uh, years ago. She was a quiet lady. Mr. Kogel came down poor from Virginia and made millions. He made millions in timber business and in land. Mr. Kogel wasn't a believer, but Mr. Kogel loved Mrs. Kogel. Mrs. Kogel came to Christ and had a passion to reach people for Christ. Mr. Kogel allowed her to give money to missions and to the church. As a matter of fact, back then, 
the Southern Baptist um, Convention had kind of gotten far from God's Word, and so they started an independent Baptist church to make sure that the Word of God was taught. Miss Kogel never taught a Sunday school class. She never taught a women's Bible study. She didn't go to Bible college. She didn't go to seminary. Yet, she still has tremendous influence on people today. She's been dead years. But Mrs. Kogel lives on. Miss Kogel had ten children. I think nine of them lived for the Lord. One, I'm not sure. But their descendants today, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who are walking with God, some are pastors, some are teachers, some are business people, giving to ministry. I can still see Mrs. Kogel. Again, remember, we're back in... Alabama, back in the 60s and 70s, where there was racism, and the, and the, the, the two races, the whites and blacks, didn't mix. You can see Mrs. Kogel. She went over to the black community. She shared the gospel. She loved them. Miss Kogel had a heart for the Lord. She had a love for people. And God used her. In so many ways. I have no idea what she gave. I'd say she gave at least hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. Maybe millions. She gave me my first car when I came up as a missionary at ICI. Brand new little Toyota. She supported translation projects in South America. She worked with missionaries in Asia. Africa. The United States. A passion of hers was Christian radio. And you have to realize where I grew up was on a farm. It was very, very rural. You're not likely to get a Christian radio station there. But she had a heart and a burden. And today, there's not just one radio station in Alabama. There is a network of moody broadcasting radio stations in rural and small-town Alabama and Mississippi because of Mrs. Kogel. Miss Kogel still has impact. Mrs. Kogel, though extremely wealthy, gave away hundreds of thousands before her death, left 40 to 50 million to her children and grandchildren, rode in a very simple, plain, unair conditioned car in hot and humid Alabama. She never wore fancy dresses, very low key, always concerned for others. When I trusted Christ, she gave me my first Bible. And I watched her. Every time someone came to Christ, she gave him a Bible. Mrs. Kogel never taught a class. Never taught 
Sunday school that I know of never taught a women's study, but oh, did she teach. Oh, did she teach. Oh, did she teach. Today, though she's dead for many years, Mrs. Cogwell continues to impact not just Dixon Mills, Alabama, but yes, Alabama, Mississippi, but all the world because she was committed to seeing God's word taught. God wants you. He wants me to study his word, to live accordingly, and to teach it, just as Ezra. Some of you may never teach a class, but we can have the impact if we set our heart to study God's word, to practice it, to teach those around us. We've looked, we've seen Ezra the, the man, the man of God. We've seen his pedigree. He comes from a long line, that first chief priest, qualified, has the credentials to be where he is. His profession, a scribe, a priest. His passion, to know, to study, to live out, and to teach the God of Word, the Word of God. Well, we've seen the man of God. Let's now move on and look at the plan of God. And these are in verses 11 through 26 that were read earlier. In this we see the plan that God had to accomplish his purpose in the nation of Israel. Remember, Ezra was in Babylon. He was 900 miles away. It was a rough, rough trip, three and a half to four months to get there. We didn't use the word stirred today on the rock, but we could have because God stirred his heart to be willing to go. And he stirred another king, just as we looked in the first chapter, King Cyrus. This time, he stirred King Artaxerxes. In verse 11, we read, This is a copy of a letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God, of heaven. Peace. Now I decree. And he goes into the decree. In this passage, again, we see king of Persia, most powerful man at that time, authorizing Ezra to accomplish his commission. We see God's provision as this king provides for his plan through all the governmental treasuries. And in these, from verse 11 through 26, 
There are five stipulations. It was read earlier by uh, Cohen. We saw all that was given, but five things that are in these verses. First one is, King Artaxerxes authorizes Ezra to, go, to lead a group back to Jerusalem in order to ensure that God's law was upheld, that God's law was taught. Ezra was ordered to do an inspection of the Jewish community. And he used the Pentateuch. He used the law of Moses as a standard. Second stipulation was that he provided funds for the temple. If you look, you've seen that passage. It talked about free will offering among the Jews. It says it provided silver and gold to buy bulls and rams and uh, grain for offering and drink offerings. It says also that King Artaxerxes returned vessels that had been kept from uh, previous times. He trusted Ezra, the man of God. Because in verse 20 he says, he says, he instructs the people in the treasuries, give him anything that's needed. Anything that's needed. So first, first stipulation, Eli can go to, back to Jerusalem. Secondly, phones provided. Third, he commands, good word, he commands the treasuries in the province there to provide resources. Verse 22 says, Whatever the priest, as with the priest and expert in the law of God of heaven ask you, you must provide promptly up to 7,500 pounds of silver. That's over two tons. That's going on three tons of silver. 600 bushels of wheat. 600 gallons of wine. 600 gallons of oil. And salt without limit. You see, God working in his sovereignty through this man, who's king, providing for all the needs for the temple. Fourth, in verse 24, the king exempts all the, the workers within the temple. It says, we, in verse 24, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute or custom or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and other servants of the house of God. So they were exempt from taxation. Would you like to be exempt from taxation? Well, fifth, fifth stipulation that King Artaxerxes uh, had was he, he authorized and basically commanded Ezra to appoint judges. Ezra was going back. He was observing what was going on, seeing what was being taught, looking around, not in a, in a, in a, in a nosy way, but he was finding out what was going on. It was initially a fact-finding situation. Then he goes on, 
And the king says that he is to appoint judges for the entire province of beyond the river and to execute justice on all of those who are disobedient. Now, Ezra didn't have the title of, of governor, but he sure had a lot of power. In verses 25 and 26, we read, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province of beyond the river, all such as know the laws of, you, of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. So he says, if they don't know it, it's your job to teach them. And whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods and imprisonment. The king gave Ezra a lot of power, a lot of authority. He provided all the funds to operate the temple. He commanded the treasuries there within the province to provide whatever. And then he authorized Ezra to appoint judges. The king recognized Ezra's wisdom. He recognized his character. Otherwise, he wouldn't have allowed all that money to go with him. And the authorities backed him up. Later, again, I'm imposing on Pastor Eric's chapter 10, uh, um, later on, but in chapter 10, there's a proclamation made for all the returned exiles to gather together in Jerusalem. And if they didn't show up in three days, by the order of the officials and the elders, all his property would be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Pretty strong um, judgments there. So again, in this passage, when we see God's plan, and God's man, Ezra, working out his plan, we see God's providence. We see God's sovereignty. God was working to accomplish his plan through a secular government who had little knowledge or none and no understanding, probably, of what God was doing through them. Well, Ezra 27 and 28, we see Ezra looking back maybe on his life and seeing what God had done. And he burst forth in praise and worship of who God is. Blessed be the God, the Father of the, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing in the heart of the King to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extends to me his steadfast love before the King and his counselors and before all the King's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of God, of, of the Lord my God, was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. 
Well, Ezra looks and he's, and instead of saying, hey, I made the trip over because I'm strong and tough and wise. He didn't say that. He looked back and he didn't see all the success and say it was all about me. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing in the heart of a king to beautify, to honor a temple 900 miles away. A temple that wasn't his religion. Blessed be the Lord. And this God, you extended to me your steadfast love before the king, before his counselors. You know, Ezra could have said, you know, I'm a real bright man. I'm really sharp. And it's because of my words, my way with words, that the king did this. Isn't it easy for us when we do well, we begin to take back a little bit of the, the credit? But Ezra didn't do that. Ezra acknowledges that it was God. It was God who gave him success. It was God who brought honor to the house of the Lord. It was God who extended his love. I skipped over this purposely in verses 6 and 9. Verse 6 reads, The king granted him, and this is talking about Ezra, the king granted him all that he asked, all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. The king granted all that Ezra asked because the hand of God was upon him. In verse 9, this is when Ezra had made that 900-mile trip, three and a half months, I believe, of travel. He says, on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of God was upon him. Again, he recognized it was God. It was God. Well, what does the hand of God mean anyway? We see it four or five times, at least five times in the book of Ezra. Um, Nehemiah, coming right after it, has it over and over. What does it mean? Well, God's providential care for us means that his grace and his kindness along with his wisdom and his power, flow freely from his hand to our lives. In good times and in bad times. Remember that. In good times and bad times. God's providential care provides courage for leadership, humility to confess sins, and wisdom for teaching God's word. It supplies all our needs and comforts us in the midst of the hard times. Of course, the flip side of providential care is that in Ezra's case, that he'll be faithful to God's calling on his life. In Ezra was. He was committed to studying God's word and to living by it and to teaching it. 
Ezra wasn't a puppet. He was a human being with a mind and with a heart and with a will. And he needed to be faithful to God's calling on his life. Just as each of us today are human beings, we're not puppets. We have hearts and minds and wills. And we don't understand all this for God's sovereignty. We know that he works in ways that he accomplishes his will. But we're responsible. We're responsible. Oftentimes, we can't see what God's doing in our lives. Or what his purpose is. In the mind of Joseph, we're all familiar with the story of Joseph and the book of Genesis. We know that his brothers sold him into slavery, thinking he was probably dead. We're familiar with the story of how, because of, of the famine, that his brothers came back, and eventually they were reunited. And the brothers, of course, were scared. And Joseph spoke to them and said, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that um, that many should not should be kept alive. So he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was sovereign. Just as Ezra in verses 27 and 28 burst into thanksgiving and praise for this God whose hand was upon him, you and I need to burst into praise for this God whose hand is upon us. If you weren't here Thursday night for vertical worship, you missed a good time because we were praising God and thanking God. Well, God is sovereign, not only in big things, but in our daily lives. And we're responsible. Ezra had to be willing to leave his comfort and go to Jerusalem. God's word often compresses ideas, big ideas, into passing phrases. I love Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where it says that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But this follows. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God working in us. We're told in in Leviticus, to be holy, because I'm holy. In Leviticus 20, it says, keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Who makes you holy. Leviticus 21 says, I am the Lord am holy. I who make you holy. God in his providence and his sovereignty works in our lives to bring about his will. Ezra was a specially gifted teacher. Not all of us will be gifted in that way. Not all of us will be teachers. Not all of us will teach formally, but we're required to learn God's word 
we're required to know God's Word in order to know Him and to make Him known, in order to live for Him. You may not be up front in what you do. I look around and I see so many people who have different gifts. Rick's hiding behind the post there, Rick Lexby. He does teach sometimes, he does come up here. But Rick's a man who, he loves numbers. He works for the IRS. You know what? Rick goes over to the offices and spends three, four, five hours on doing books. You see, each of us have different gifts and different abilities. No one is better than the other. It's because God gifted us with a body of Christ. We don't need to be all arms or all legs. Be who God has made you to be. I'm reminded of Mary Slessor. She was born in Scotland in 1840s. This decade was called the Hungry Forties because of the famine. Mary's father was an alcoholic. At age seven, she was forced to work at the mill half-time. Eventually, as things got worse, she had to quit school and go work in the mill full-time. The house that she lived in was a tiny one-room flat, no water, no lighting, no sanitation facilities. It was a tough world for this red-headed, street-wise young lady. But one day, she heard a missionary from what is now Sudan, I think called Calabar back then, came and shared about the ministry there. Her heart was inflamed. She wanted to go. It seemed that everything was against her and everyone. Everything and everyone but God. But God. And she went. She went in the midst of all the slave trade and all the things that were going on. It's a tough, tough area. She became known as Mary, Queen of Calabar, because she was, had that tough love. She adopted dozens of African babies that were left in the bush. She would threaten at times. She would do whatever it took to save the kids. When Mary Slessor, the fighting Scot from the slums of Dundee, went to an Africa that was reeling, again, with slave trade, with pagan practices, where when twins were born, the view was that one had the devil for the father. So both were killed, because they didn't know who. But she lived there for almost 40 years. She worked for the rights of African women to be free from being killed by a man. She lived as an African in a hut most of the time. And when she died, thousands of Africans gathered and wept for a mother of all peoples, as they called her. 
We're called to know God's Word. We're called to study and to live by God's Word and to teach it in the way that God has called us to do. Ezra did. I mentioned the rock to you earlier that has a rock on it, or has the word heart on it. Is your heart devoted to be that man or woman of God? What is your heart set on? Let's close in word now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the life of Ezra. Father, of your providential care over him. We thank you, God, that he was your man to accomplish your plan. And Father, you provided. Father, may our hearts be such that we love you in a way that he did. That we'll be totally devoted to you, Father, to, to knowing your word and to living it and to teaching it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this time, if counselors will come forward, we will uh, begin with uh, the song. If you come in today and have a burden, if you have a question, feel free to come forward for, for prayer.